As I write and record the introduction to this interview with Bob Joseph, I'm actually in Australia and we're about two weeks out from a national referendum, a referendum about whether to change the Australian constitution to recognize the first peoples of Australia by establishing a body called the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Voice. And I'm embarrassed to say that it doesn't look likely to pass. I mean, by the time you're listening to this, we're going to know for sure. There's been all sorts of scaremongering and weasel words from people who you know, I'm frustrated by, but perhaps even more profoundly worrying. There's just a general lack of energy and empathy among most of the Australians. Um, I'm there. I thought I'd see t-shirts. I thought I'd see banners. I thought I'd see more. And it's really quiet. I mean, it feels to me like a once in a generation opportunity for reconciliation and empowerment and healing is being missed. It's confronting, recognizing that so many of us live, and this is how we might put it in Canada, on unceded territories of First Nations. It's not always, maybe it's not ever easy to know what to do about it. So I'm really grateful to the people doing the work to give the rest of us the chance to do the right things and to make the braver choices. Welcome to Two Pages with MBS, the podcast where brilliant people read the best two pages from a favorite book, a book that has moved them, a book that has shaped them. Bob Joseph is the president and the CEO of a company called Indigenous Corporate Training, and it focuses on teaching people how to work effectively with those people who are native to a land, in this case, Canada. He's the author of a perpetual bestseller in Canada, 21 Things You May Not Know About the Indian Act, published through my publisher, actually, two pages, which I'm really proud of, or page two. <laughs> I always get that confused. Page two is my publisher. And honestly, Bob has been changing the world steadily for decades now. I feel like, you know, lots of other people were talking about, you know, mid-career changes and, and that kind of stuff. And I often wondered how people would judge me. Wow, he's done the same thing for, you know, since 1994. He hasn't moved off of that. And and I'm glad I, I, I'm glad I stuck with it, you know. Malcolm Gladwell talked about two types of artists, Matisse, who painted the same two pictures, mountains, a mountain, and an apples. He painted those his whole career and became ever more masterful. And Picasso, who kept reinventing his style, Cubist and the Blue Period and whatever else. It's clear Bob Joseph is a Matisse. And the origin of this work rests in part in ceremony. I come from a potlatch family, uh, part of the Kwakwakiwak people's northwest coast, British Columbia, Canada. And uh, potlatch is a gift-giving ceremony, and we transfer names, songs, crests, title to territory. We celebrate birth, death, puberty, marriage. Everything happens in, a, in one of our potlatches. Bob talks in more detail later on about a potlatch. It's clearly a crucial cultural celebration and ceremony, and one that was almost obliterated. We underwent a uh, an assimilation process in this country, and we tried to stamp out the potlatch and get rid of hereditary chiefs like myself. So my dad's a hereditary chief. I'm uh, I'm going to inherit his chieftainship when he dies. One thing that transcends cultures is the need for the passing, metaphorically, sometimes literally, of the torch from one generation to the next. And what's nice is this can happen while both generations are alive. One day, about two years ago, I asked him if, you know, I said, it's too bad you have to die, you know, for <laughs> me to be able to inherit your chieftainship. I would love to do something with you. Yeah. 
Steve had, there's uh, no way to do that. So he went and consulted with some of the other chiefs and came back a couple of months later and he said, Hey, I found a way that I, I have some vacant seats as well that I haven't been able to put people into. And, uh, you know, uh, there's this idea that I can give you one of those vacant chieftainships and you uh -huh. don't have to wait till I die anymore and we can do a right. ball together. And, and <laughs> so, so that was pretty cool. It was, uh, yeah, you know, and that was really a leadership, you know, issue for me because he's, he's such a knowledgeable person and he's got, you know, he's got incredible political, social support. And I thought, you know, it would be great if we could do something because he could be like, he's like the muscle for me, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, uh, so, problem. Yeah. May I ask you, um, you know, stepping into being a chief and also knowing that you, you have that hereditary chief role that you will inherit from your father, who was the first person who role modeled what being a chief meant and what did you learn from them? Oh gosh, there's so many, uh, so many people I would have to acknowledge, uh, but having, having gone to, uh, potlatches and, and just watched different people, you know, I was impressed by the young chiefs who were having to come, you know, come into their own and, you know, it was all around, you know, all the different rites of passage and sort of admiring those folks and how, you know, how complicated it is to sort of, uh, carry the weight of the nation on your shoulders, make sure the language and the culture and the social and economic and all of that stuff is working. Yeah. And, you know, largely uh, volunteer for those guys um, and to watch them at a young age. Uh, you know, people like uh, William Wasden Jr., for example, he was, you know, and fairly, very high regarded and everybody supported him and, and really just trying to figure out how the heck did he do that? <laughs> I didn't know where, <laughs> I didn't know where, uh, you know, Bill Kramer and my dad, they're, you know, they, they, they've been sort of, uh, working together in the potlatch. They see a lot of the ceremonies and, and yeah. watching those two work together individually. Um, how do you, how do you keep a, an event going? That's going to run from 10 o'clock in the morning to maybe two o'clock in the morning. And, right. and you've got, you know, chiefs and matriarchs sitting there and trying to keep it all flowing. And, you know, you've got to feed people and, and we're talking, you know, we're talking about 1,100, 1,200 people sometimes. Yeah. It's a <laughs> so, so microcosm of a, of a bigger responsibility. Yeah. How do you, uh, and so, you know, I was like, how do you make all of this work? Like it just <laughs> seems to work. And, and, uh, and then of course, you know, some, we, we have a number of uh, societies that we, you know, if you're, if you were a Kwakwakwak person, you would belong to a society. And so I actually was a part of the Hansa society, which really is a, a leadership society and working with, you know, some of the, uh, other Hamatsas and, and the ones that, you know, were clearly ahead of me, they were kind of the previous generation, but they're, they're going to inherit sooner and watching yes. how they think and, and conduct themselves. And, and, uh, yeah, so there, there were, uh, a lot of people to draw on and, and there were indigenous leaders from other cultures too that were very impressive you know chief dan george and you know some of some of those other folks where yeah you just saw their passion for people <laughs> you you talked about their ability to carry the weight of a nation <laughs> how do you carry the weight of a nation I think, um, well, there's lots of ways you gotta, you gotta keep, uh, exercising the culture though. You gotta keep practicing. You gotta keep potlatching. You gotta motivate people. And, um, 
a lot of it is uh, based on on hard work. So you know, we you know a, a lot of our stuff is uh, storytelling through singing and songs and mm-hmm. you know reciting oral history and and there's so much that goes into uh, into that. And so you know, in in front of potlatches, I've been with my dad for a few years, following him, t- t- getting him to teach me. You know, what yeah. do we what do we do here? Um, you know, we'll, we'll go to the artists shit and we'll talk to the artists and you'll just say, you know, thank you for all you guys do, um, you know, in keeping the, the, the nation going, he, he works with the people who are interested in language. Hey, you guys are awesome. Keep it up. You know, if you, <laughs> if you need me to record, I'll come and record with you. Yeah. And, you know, it's, uh, being there when the old people are getting ready to pass away. And yeah, so he does, he, he does a lot. It's, uh. It's a big role. I guess I'm curious also how you kind of sit with the weight of that responsibility. Like I understand some of those actions, you know, maintaining the potlatch um, mm-hmm. ceremony, language, dance, ceremony around becoming a man or passing on. All of those are the the waft and the weave that make up this tapestry of, of a community, of a nation. But the the weight <laughs> feels that it would to sit with that. How do you build capacity for that responsibility? Well, I think there's a, a number of things. Probably, you know, one of my primary motivators, and and my dad has a big set of shoes to fill, and I, <laughs> I I'm always like, there's no way I'm going to be that good, and I'm not yeah. going to fill those shoes. But I, I'm I'm going to have to go through that, and. And I'll, you know, there'll always be comparisons and I'm not, I'm, I'm not him. And I've worked hard, you know, career-wise to sort of put some distance between yeah. us that way and to take a, a different track. I went really corporate. He was really cultural community. And, and I thought, you know, I'm going to try to be the best I can in the corporate world and, you know, start at the bottom and claw my way to the top like everybody <laughs> else and uh, stumbled upon this work, working for a company, um, yeah. you know, where I, where I do uh, indigenous awareness training and reconciliation training, those kinds of things. And um, so, um, the, you know, carrying the weight, I, I didn't, I didn't, um, how should I say this in a way, uh, you know, I knew I had to, but as long as he was there, I was really, at the, you know, he, he's got this, I don't have to worry so much. Right. And I could focus on that career because potlatching is a gift giving ceremony. It means I actually have to give gifts at the right. end of the ceremony. So, you know, let's say I want to give my son uh, a name, a hamatsa. Uh, we do that in front of the nation and they all witness. And at the end, I distribute gifts to them. If they accept the gifts, they, they accept that I had the right to do that. And so it's so integral. So a potlatch would be 40, 50, 80 grand of my own money, plus my family chips in, you know, we're, yeah. we've got to feed 1100 of the closest relatives, wow. give them all gifts. We've got to, you know, pay chiefs and matriarchs and singers and dancers and fire keepers and dark keepers. I mean, they're, yeah. they're big, they're big, uh, extensive events. So I thought I'm not going to worry about it too much because, you know, early in my career, I was like, I'm never going to be able to do this anyways. I don't know how yeah. this is, how, you know, it's like, when you were a kid, maybe, maybe a lot of people can relate to this, where we were looking at it thinking, ah, I'm never going to be able to afford an $80,000 house because that's what my dad's house was worth when I was, you know, yeah. 16. I'm like, I'm not even going to bother. You what know, is so. that? Exactly. It's impossible. Yeah. What and is that, that number? It makes it, no sense. It does. And, you know, 
for my, you know, for my kid today in Victoria, you know, it's like a, a million dollar townhouse. How is he going to yeah. afford that? You know, and and so there was some of that going on. And then, and then a really big motivator, I, I don't know what the syndrome would be, if there's probably a name for it. I wish we had like Nate Gabor here or somebody, you know, where they could talk about it. Because uh, I just think about those chiefs that went to jail and, and uh, you know, and uh, for practicing potlatching, cutting their regalia seeds, donated them to public collections, and yeah. you know all of those, all of those things. And I think hmm, that's why I got to do this, right? Yeah. Let me ask you one other question before I, I ask you about the book you've chosen. How has the landscape you grew up in shaped the man you've become? Oh gosh. Um, so I, I grew up in a little logger commercial fishing town <laughs> on the West Coast, uh, not without its challenges, especially with regards to indigenous peoples, you know. Um, and uh, I think that was that was probably the the big piece, you know. High school high school was pretty rough when you're when you're you know when you're in a come from a marginalized community. Um, it was uh, you know. Um, it, it was just, and, and of course, indigenous issues in Canada, for those listeners who aren't here, they, they sometimes make the news. And if you're indigenous, yeah. if it makes the news, it makes your life at some point in that couple of days. And so, you know, there might be a fishing issue playing on, playing out in the evening news. And I go to school the next day. And why do you, why do you guys have to have special rights? You know, and that, that kind of stuff really, uh, really, uh, grapes on you and i i i was like i i don't know and i don't you know i don't yeah. it doesn't it doesn't seem to affect me and i don't understand the policies and regulations and the views that canada and provinces had but mm. i understood the views they were sharing which really was about equality you got to be right why are you why do you have to be different why can't you be like everybody else and so i call those the, the equality views and so I, I honestly, I, I would get strangers coming up to me on the street. I wish you guys would pay taxes. And, you know, I'd be working right. in a job where I was paying taxes. It was just the stereotypes were uh, so ingrained. So to have this opportunity in the corporate sector to start to address stereotypes um, as part of a, an employment contract. And right. I started to realize, hey, you know, we could, we could make a difference here. If I, you know, having to learn about it from a, an employment employer perspective. I've got to get in front of these people and they're going to ask me because they asked me when I was on the sky train and on airplanes. Yeah. And now I get a chance to respond without the fear of, you know, getting the tar beat out of me <laughs> for responding. And, uh, so I mean, you've been, you've been a champion for reconciliation. If you were fully successful, what would reconciliation look like? You know, the, um, for the listeners, again, it's going to take a while. You know, it took us 137 yeah. years to get into this mess, but I, it, and I think I'm hoping it won't take us 137 to get out. But, I hope not. But we're yeah. taking a long-term view of reconciliation, and we're not we're not resting it on governments. Um, we're resting it on people like your listeners. We're hoping mm. that they will pick up the flag and march it forward in their families, communities, church groups, and places of business. And uh, you know, I, I was, when I was promoting my book, 21 Things You May Not Know About the Indian Act, people would say, what do you want the government to do? And I'm like, you know what? They, they got us into this mess. I would rather <laughs> not. I, I, I would not discourage the government for doing good stuff on reconciliation. And I wish yeah. they would. And, 
to keep that commitment going for as long as it takes. And uh, But I'm really hanging my hat on Canadians. I would bet on Canadians any day to sort of do the right thing. But I think, um, you know, so we're so we're a ways away from reconciliation. But in, in, a, in a reconciled world, we'd just be respectful of each other and our differences. You know, they're, they're actually, uh, you know, it's Canadiana. You know, we came to this idea, well... It's, it's Canadiana as we see it, you know, since the patriated constitution, you know, right. where we, for these different peoples, we've come to this country and some of us didn't come from anywhere, but that's a whole nother conversation. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, but we're respectful of those differences. And, and so it, in the future, I, I can see that where we're, you know, where we're, uh, not looked as looked on as, uh, warps of the crown and, and you know some of those some of those really negative stereotypes, and I think we're starting to see that now. You know, we're hearing yeah. land acknowledgments across corporations right. and sporting events and all of that stuff, and and so I think things are are really starting to change. But ultimately, we're going to get to a place that I call the three selves, and the first self is a self that is uh, what I call self determination. Mm. Which means currently I'm a I'm a status Indian, so I have a I'm legally racially defined in Canada right now. My number is sixty. So I won't tell you what my status number is, but um, and it was designed to assimilate. But I was given that identity by the federal government, who needed a KPI to know when I've assimilated. Right? They needed a key performance indicator, so they legally racially defined me, and so. What um, what we do in potlatches, and, and it has always been sort of this this uh, part of the struggle, if I can, for lack of a better term, yeah. was to continue to give our kids names and our mm. community people and the people that we married. Uh, my wife, who's non-indigenous, we gave her a you know very important name because um, we believe in an an inherent right to self determination, which means the government of Canada doesn't grant us grant us the right to tell us who our people are. We we do that right. And it was given to us by the creator. So that's where we're, where we're coming from. And so self-determination simply is nobody in Ottawa gets to tell us who our people are. <laughs> right. And it's so a very the, uh, the first one. political statement. The, the yeah. next one is um, self-government. So mm. remember before contact, uh, hereditary chiefs governed everything. They, you know, birth, death, puberty, marriage, they did all of the work of government. And it happened our, our big house was our place of government. The chiefs were the politicians and, and, um, you know, driven by matriarchs. And, and so we were all in self-governing communities and I really struggled, you know, when you, when you told me I had to pick a book and read, that's like, <laughs> I really wanted to talk about some of the self-government stuff, but, yeah, yeah. but, uh, um, the, um, uh, so we were, we were self-governing, but we, um, uh, Along comes the federal government and says, look, Bob, the way you're governing yourselves, it's backwards, it's wrong. You need to elect the chief and council just like we're all doing. And it's funny because they completely ignored the fact that, you know, we're a constitutional monarchy with a federal basis, right? We don't right, like your exactly. traditional government is what they were saying. <laughs> and we're right. going to replace it with a duly elected right. Um <clears throat> But that's not good for us. That's only good for you. Yeah. So it really was a... a uh, an overthrow, a dispossession of our leadership by these and chief and councils. And, and we saw that in the Wet'suwet'en sort of hereditary chief, you know, coastal gas link debacle. That was just the hereditary chief for saying, hey, no, we, we govern. We, these are rights given to us by the creator. This, these are resources to us given by the creator. And <clears throat> so we're, we're going to govern, you know, mm -hmm. 
And the government was uh, always out there with, we have signed agreements with all of the elected councils all along the pipeline. And, you know, it was like, yeah, so but that's the wrong people, but if you're feeling good about hanging your hat there. <laughs> and it ended up to be, you know, it, it's a, you know, it's a, a three, four, five billion dollar pipeline. But that, but when you add the, you know, the protests, the blockades of railways and Port mm -hmm. Metro Vancouver and all of that stuff, you know, it's probably a $24 billion pipeline. And uh, when you really start to factor that and nobody's done a study i've been waiting for somebody to say what were the economic impacts of coastal gas link wet soton conversation yeah. because i think that'll open to the the door to this notion and i think you know our premier at the time horrigan said we're we're not going to do this again in the future the way we've done this and we're implementing right. the united nations declaration on the rights of indigenous peoples and you know which was all messaging to say we're going to work with hereditary chiefs and, and yeah. that kind of stuff so that's the self-government piece. So then the self-reliance piece. So right now we're pretty reliant. All the funding for healthcare, housing, and education comes from Indian Affairs. And, you know, if you've ever wondered what that funding looks like, most people see it as a Shangri-La of free housing and, you know, just right. stuff like that. But the reality is more Kaseshawan water crisis, right? Yeah. And all of the communities without clean drinking water and the population of of uh, status Indians who actually live on reserve is only about 40%. 60% are in Toronto and Vancouver and Cambridge. And, you know, they're spread out across the country because the the federal government um, doesn't provide enough funding. Yeah. So that's the self-reliance piece then is how do we, um, you know, and the NISCA were really good at this. So the NISCA have a final treaty here in British Columbia and they were saying, Give us some lands and resources because we think you have a responsibility and a legal obligation to yeah. give us the ability to make decisions about those lands and resources. And we will participate in the political and economic mainstream of this country, but in a way that protects our cultures. Yeah. And so if I could give you the seven second soundbite for dealing with stuff that we haven't dealt with land claims and treaties yes. and, and that kind of stuff, I think, uh, you know, in the future, a reconciled future, and there'll be, there'll be governments where we go to get things and, um, in exchange, those governments will ask for revenue sharing, uh, in stumpage fees, which is something that's already happening in BC forest company cuts down a tree. They pay stumpage to the province. The province takes a percentage of those stumpage fees, transfers them back to first nations for, right. to fulfill their consultation or accommodation obligation. So. That could be forestry, mining, oil, gas, you know, natural resource revenue sharing. I think um, yeah. Victoria, you know, opened the door to an idea, which I think is on its way where they said, you know, there, here's an extra box here. If you want to contribute more money, we'll transfer that to First Nations and whose territory we've been able to, to live in. So that gets us out of the dependency of Indian mm. affairs and the whims of politicians and political ideology and participating and it actually makes a lot of sense you know if they're if they're like in ontario the first nations are 80 you know 88 first nations are involved in the power line business they have mm -hmm. equity in the power lines so guess who's not fighting new power right. line construction because right. there's 88 tribes yeah mm -hmm. there's 88 nations yeah. yeah this is such a great setup but i'm curious to know about the book you've chosen for us yeah yeah so what have, you, what have you picked so i like um 
there, there were so many. First of all, this was tough. I, I, I was all, I was all over the place. That was probably the, tough, the toughest part of this. And, <laughs> and, and you're not the first guest to have said that. You know, part of what I love about this is oh. having people who love books come. Ah, <laughs> it was hard. Yeah, how do I pick? Yeah. Do I pick one on Indigenous history? You know, exactly. in the Western Hemisphere. You know, the other book I kind of wrestled with was the Four Hour Work Week with uh, oh, yeah, Tim, you know, Ferriss. Tim, Tim Ferriss and and uh, Donald Miller. You know, business made oh, yeah. simples. You know, yeah, so I love Don Miller stuff. Yeah, I'm about to go and hang out at his ranch in a couple of months' time. So that's wow, great. Eh? right yeah. on! I'll, I'll, yeah. I'd love to hear how it goes because he's. I'm a big fan, and I'm implementing all of his stuff because uh, you know I really want the work that we're doing in this company. Uh, to continue on, like I'm, like yeah. I said, I'm 60. I think I can go another 10 years. I love what I do, but at some point, you know, I'm really starting to think about the future. And yeah, and so I've had to go from a management by chaos style, you know, because we've got, <laughs> got like I recognize of, that. Yeah, we got eight or nine people, you know, kind of running around, keeping you know three, four, five trainers really busy, and yeah, and you know, blogging and all of the things that you have to do to 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 run a good business. And so uh, I chose a book and I'm, I'm always looking at leadership and then, you know, trying mm -hmm. to apply or I'm comparing a lot of times. I wonder if, how does this compare with how we view the world as Kwakwakiwak people? Yeah. So I picked uh, be different or be dead. And the a author bold is, statement. <laughs> yeah. Roy, Roy Osing and Roy. Um, it's really a, a book that I think is um, helpful to me because really I have to be different, you know, with the truth and reconciliation commission's calls to action. They said, you know, a lot of those calls said we need uh, Canadians and companies and government should make resources available for people to learn about the history culture. And so yeah. since the TRC, there's been a lot of shingles been hung out from people that are, you know, doing this important work. And, and that's great. I, I, uh, I appreciate it. I, I like the, uh, competition i i like the spirit of trying to change the world that they're all doing yes. and and uh in the spirit of competition though i i, I want to win <laughs> <laughs> exactly. and, uh, and uh in in a way that you know is is uh, respectful obviously but yes so how did, how did you come across this book did you just pick it up as part of the leadership quest for good books or is it did it come into your life in a different way yeah, a friend of mine recommended it to me he runs a delta business chamber of commerce and he's like hey i got it i i met this guy he's working with us and he has a great book i want to i want to share a copy with you and so he That's shipped great. me a copy and i read through it and and it was sort of just timely because i'm going yeah. from management by chaos to i want to build a you know a, a performance company that beautiful that will continue into the future and so i'm thinking about those kinds of things and and i think it'll help me you know with my community work too and and uh and so there was lots of good stuff strategic planning you know some of the yeah. things that i really liked you know, you've, you've got to have an only statement we're the only company that has trainers from academia um nice. government you know and so i've been really working hard so that you know when people are looking at all the shingles who's doing indigenous awareness training you know yeah they, they look at it and I make their choice really tough. That, uh, See, uh, the Don Miller um, story brand position yeah, stuff, which and, is like, yeah, name, claim, claim your spot, mm -hmm. name the problem you solve, yeah. explain how you do it in a way that's unique. I love it. And, and you know what really resonates with me about Don Miller is the, uh, the whole uh, 
the story itself, the hero has yeah. a challenge. I think to all of the things that we share in our podcast, they're all stories, heroic yeah. stories. You know, we yeah. have uh, the legend of CVD and CVD was a, uh, not, you know, he was an unperforming character in our history. And then, uh, you know, one day he gets dragged in under the water and he comes back with the, the Lord of the Seas box of treasures and becomes an important person. You know, it's just like watching that play out. Now, now it plays out in front of, you know, 1,100 people. There's 40, 45 masks. The song goes yeah. on for half an hour, an hour. It's like a play within a, you know, just for for an analogy sake, but we're, we're yeah. recounting a history and I just thinking, yeah, you know, I'd love to be able to tell those stories. And I've said this before, but we're pretty, uh, pretty closed on it. You know, I think, you know, the adventures that he goes on would ride, I think they'd be up there with Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings, you know, but, yeah. but it's, it's actual history to us and families have the rights to it. And, you know, yeah, yeah. there'd be so many issues trying to get that story out, but it's a great story. I love, yeah. love the story brand. So I'm just reading a book on um, Australian Aboriginal Indigenous wisdom. And there's a similar conversation in this book, which is around, we've got some great stories, <laughs> but the stories that can be shared with somebody like me, mm -hmm. are like, as they say in the book, the kids versions of the stories, yeah, yeah. simplified, <laughs> cut down. Mm -hmm. And then as you become a more important person or you take on different responsibilities, you get access to deeper versions of each of those stories. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it's like hearing the kids stories are, is, is amazing enough yeah but let's talk about these two pages which oh, two pages have yeah. you chosen so um and there were lots of two pages that i could have picked from and it was like i say it was really tough even <laughs> in roy's book but um you know he talks about taking a small company and turning it into a billion dollar company and whether we're you know trying to build a company or trying to build a movement for reconciliation yeah. you know really um, it comes down to people. And so Roy starts to talk about people in his, uh, in his book and what he looks for in hiring people, or I think of it as recruiting because some of the people, you know, they, they take our training and they're, they're leading the charge inside their mm -hmm. company, whether it's Fortis or Acto or, you know, any, any of these, uh, companies at church groups or wherever they happen to be. And so, you know, it, part of it is finding those people and then really nurturing them, supporting yeah. them. And, um, and so that, that to me is the, the big piece, whether it's for your company or for, you know, what I consider a, a broad political movement to change yep. the country and how we relate to each other and how prosperous we come. I just, I'm just passionate. I believe that if we, if we get to the three selves, this, it will unleash the real potential of this country. And if we, if we fight it, it's, our, it's like our biggest downfall. And we saw how close we came on, say, Trans Mountain, where the federal government actually had to buy the project to save right. it. And they right. bought it, not just to save the project, but to actually save the economy. Because if you can't right. build that, you can't do anything. Why would why would global investors look at Canada as a viable option, right? And so, so for me, it's a... Uh, you know, I, I picked the, these two pages because I really wanted to focus on what Roy was talking about, which was how do you hire? How do you find those people? You know, you have stacks it. of resumes and, you know, if, even if you're not recruiting them to your, to your business, you're to be a worker in it, you're recruiting them to 
pick up yeah. the flag and charge reconciliation forward. And, that's right. And so how do you look for people? So that that's what I'm going to read from. And, and beautiful. Uh, and I'll I don't want to I don't want to uh, you know I don't want to do the spoiler just yet. <laughs> okay, uh, I'm uh, excited. Uh, so Bob Joseph reading from Roy Osing's book, "Be Different or Be Dead." Yeah. Over to you, Bob. Thank you, thank you, and and um, so Roy talks about in a in Move Ten. So he's got an interesting book. He talks about moves. He's kind of a, a an interesting writer. And I won't read the the first paragraph, but he starts to talk about in the second paragraph hiring the right person. So that's yeah. where I'm going to pick up from. Lovely. The key in 99.99% of the cases is to hire the right person into a service position if you want to dazzle the customer or leave them breathless from the service experience they've had with you. I'm not impressed with the people recruited into customer services positions because many of them are incapable of delivering even a mediocre service experience. Why? Well, many of them have been placed in a position because they're seniority in the company or because they're looking for a career move and they want to try customer service. And as a result, these people find that they really don't like customers with all the complications they bring. And they would rather be doing something that didn't involve interacting with humans. The decision-making process to select people for service jobs is imprecise and securely flawed and in too many cases unqualified and unwilling people are let loose with your most precious asset your customer and so how do you fix the problem how does an organization ensure that they're hiring individuals who are not only capable of delivering mind-blowing service but also want to with every fabric of their body really help people then his next big bullet point is training people to like humans is futile. <laughs> and so many would say you can train people to do it. Certainly that's what human resource managers generally believe. Why else would they use seniority as a criterion to place people in service operations? And the fact is, however, despite all of the good intentions of cross training, you simply can't train somebody to like somebody else. And you can give them smile training and have them grin at others and use tools intended to deal with customers better, but you can't train a person to bring all the honest emotional energy to the table that is required to create a memorable experience for another person. Uh, you can train people to smile, but you can't train them to love. Human being lovers are born to do it, and the challenge is to discover them and embrace them in your organization as they are truly the custodians of the loyalty moment when a customer decides to continue doing business with you and to tell you and others how great your organization is or leave it for another service provider. So his next big bullet point is recruiting lovers. So how do you spot these people who naturally care for other humans? You must start with the usual task of filtering through the profiles of potential candidates, looking for the content that relates to serving customers as opposed to merely stressing academic achievements or other hard accomplishments. Most people avoid what they believe is the soft stuff as it relates to their background, but for the delivery of a remarkable service, the soft stuff is essential. And check their references to see if others commented on the candidate's ability to effectively deal with others with care and affection. The interview. But the critical element of the hiring process is the personal interview. I discovered an effective tool to separate the individuals who could really create 
um, magical experiences for others who talked a good game but didn't have the attitude or inclination to deliver it. Ask the multi-million dollar question. Do you love humans? <laughs> and I would ask the candidate this question straight out, as you would expect their first response is to question as uh, confusion, but after I provided clarification on what I meant by the question, they would usually answer yes or sure or of course. I would then follow up, you know, tell me a story that would illustrate just how, you, how much you care for your fellow human beings. And he said, when you start to hear those answers, and he has, it, he has it sort of separated as a sentence, he said, if you feel goosebumps when they're telling you the story, you've got, you've got one, you're looking at a lover. And uh, he said, that's a question that separated the people who really got what it took to dazzle others from those who only had theoretical understanding of, of what it took to be a caregiver. Those that didn't have an innate desire to move people emotionally left me cold with their response. And I would, you know, just thank them for their time. And uh, so goosebumps, that's what he said. Those that were born to serve, on the other hand, left me with goosebumps while they told their story. Their story was rich and with detail and the threads that bind it together were all about the importance of connecting with people on the emotional level and their authenticity poured out with every word. These individuals were the real deal. I hired them with less interest in their other qualifications and they always did me proud by the way they dealt with their customers and their fellow employees. And many eventually found their way into higher level positions in the customer service organization to provide leadership necessary to sustain the strategy that was extremely effective in gaining and maintaining competitive advantage for our organization. So if you really want to achieve a service strategy based on remarkable and memorable experiences, hire for the goosebumps. This idea crept up in, in, in me, which was a leadership idea, you know, Mm -hmm. I can't do all of this myself. There's, there's no <laughs> way. <laughs> and, yep. uh, you know, and being a trainer, as you would know, you, you, you are in a leadership yeah. position. You can teach people to do stuff faster. And, and so, although I joined training, it was just my next career move. I could see that in delivering the awareness training and talking about the business case and giving them yeah. practical hints and ideas that it really could change the world. And, Probably the best example was um, I uh, trained a bunch of our people. Uh, one of the first nations had called all of the uh, linear transition corridor companies to a meeting. You know, so it's, it was the the electricity utility, the rail companies, the right. telecommunications, and they they just wanted to save time and talk to us all at the same time. And I had trained our guys. Here's the history. And, you know, I said, you need to know the history because that puts you on the same page that keep that, that, that lessens a chance of miscommunication. If you're on the same page, you have the same history, um, yeah. makes a big deal. And then here's what to say and not say, and be sure to do the protocol, the land acknowledgement. And, and so the other, uh, four companies that were present in the room were paying attention. One of them called us after the meeting and said, Hey, can, can we come and talk to you about that meeting we were all just at? Yep. We invited them to our office and I said, so we were all just at the same meeting and, um, we noticed that your guys weren't getting beat up as badly and we're wondering why I said, yeah, you know, my job was to provide them training, give them a lot of history and help them with what to say and what not to say. And so what you saw was that they were effective and 
they were doing things and they were prepared to go places that they hadn't gone before and do things that hadn't been done before that they didn't have to, because that was a big argument. Bob, we don't do that differently for anybody. Well, you know, if you do this differently, here's the benefits. And I would just yeah. tell them that. And, and so that came through. And at the end of that meeting, this, this railway company said, would you train our people? And that was my aha moment. So they see the right. impact. They saw the difference. They wanted to get on board. Here's yeah. a chance, you know, here's a chance to help a 4,000 person organization get into this conversation. And, yeah. you know, my, my view was a lot of people doing a lot of little things adds up to pretty big change. Bob, I, I would ask you, cause I've, I've, I've done my version of this conversation, which is like, I've got some good stuff. <laughs> I'm really good at training it. Like I'm really good at training it in part because I designed it to play to all of my strengths and avoid all mm -hmm. of my weaknesses. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, it's obvious now, certainly to me that nobody can deliver my training as well as I can deliver my training. Mm -hmm. like I'm the best. <laughs> mm -hmm. The best of custom, the best. <laughs> I'm the best of the best. I'm like, it is a custom bit mm -hmm. to, to all of who I am. There can be only one. Yes. <laughs> well, I want there to be more than one. Yeah. And part of what I've had to learn is, um, how to watch other people do not such a good job. Mm -hmm. of my stuff, mm -hmm. my stuff. Mm -hmm. um, I'm curious to know how you have learned what to control and what to let go of. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we have, uh, right now we have, you know, some great trainers. We have a lady, great lady who's done amazing work in local government and first nations or indigenous peoples. We got an academic who's working on, he's a doctoral candidate. We have um, an entrepreneur who can, you know, he, he's just such a fabulous <laughs> trainer. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, and we've got a hereditary chief who's also a former elected chief. So we've got this, and they're all different and they all have these uh, amazing strengths. So what I try to do um, is just put together the, the, the package of information. And then I tell them, you know, look, this is, this is what we've committed to deliver. We're going to talk about residential schools. We're going to talk about treaties. We're going to talk about, and so you can talk about that. And I, I really work with them just to say, I can't, you know, you're you, I can't tell you what to say, but whatever we say, it has to be valid and reliable. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we're not making anything up and, you know, I, I, I really hate giving advice. I tell them all, I really hate giving <laughs> advice. And I know you, you tell people you yeah, should yeah. hate that in your, that's right. And, uh, um, but they're always going to ask you for advice. So, you know, mm -hmm. here, here's how I handle that. I give just a whole bunch of viewpoints and let them right. filter through, which is the best, you know, and, uh, which is the best viewpoint to, to land on that way. I'm not trying to convince them. And, and, uh, and the other part is, you know, as I was doing all of the research for the history piece, uh, I stumbled upon a quote and I didn't know who, who it was attributed to, but it said, Whosoever sets themselves up as an administrator of truth and justice is shipwrecked by the laughter of the gods. And I thought, <laughs> what a quote, man. I don't know who this person is, but they obviously, exactly, yeah. they've worked with indigenous people. Then I started to look for who it was attributed to, and it was Albert yeah. Einstein. Oh, and so Einstein, you know, just so many lessons out of Einstein. Einstein yeah. understood I feel, and, and this is what I took from it. I feel that I, I'm the best at this. And in yeah. those days, I was one of maybe two in the country. 
and the other one wasn't as good and and i <laughs> right. still compete with them to this day they still yeah i changed my website there there's is copied and better within two days you know what i mean it's just we've had this running battle and it's been healthy and i've never met them personally but right i'm, I'm trying you're to ele- you're elevating each other to be better yeah yeah <laughs> there you go and uh, that's a good way to look at it, actually. I'm like, <laughs> dang, you know, I'm like, dang him. Why can't he get his own ideas? You know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so I, I try to keep that in mind too, and I try to just realize I learn. And so for us, um, you know, I, I really do look at the um, the evaluation forms afterwards. What did you like? Didn't like? You know, how did you like your trainer and the format of the course? And and so I do pay attention to those. And and the yeah. other thing that really helps me evaluate whether I think they're doing a great job and delivering experiences that aren't exactly the same as mine is, uh, you know, sort of repeats, you know, like we, yeah. we got, we got, a, you know, Flavio's one of our trainers, mom's Anishinaabe, dad's Italian, obviously. And <laughs> he goes in and he's like, you know, fours and fives, you know what I mean? Like 4.8 yeah. out of five overall rating. I mean, like he's super awesome. He's better than me. And I tell everybody, anybody who will listen, but he doesn't right. do it like I do it at all. He he does. Yeah. He's almost 180 degrees opposite, but oh, so he rates higher than me all the time. And and uh, so, you know, back to Albert Einstein, I can't be the administrator of truth and justice. I just nice. need to get this out there and build this army of trainers and and you know and help those those practitioners out there. You know, move yeah. move the needle quickly in their in their worlds. Bob. Right at the start of our conversation, you, as you're introducing yourself, you're like, I've been doing this for many years now. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I haven't had a career change. <laughs> I haven't mm-hmm. lost focus. I've been committed to this one, this one drum beat. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How do you stay patient? Uh, you know what? It's watching for the little victories and really mm. celebrating those, right? Because you're not going to get the, the big one is, is you know, for me is really not even in my lifetime. But, right. you know, I, I would, you know, we, we had a problem, for example, when I was working for my, my first employer where I did this, you know, somebody said, how do we, how do we do this? You know, how do we fix this? You know, they, they, they tell us they don't get money from Indian Affairs to talk to us. And, you know, we need them to talk to us because it ties up all our projects. And so, you know, taking a look at it, I said, so, you know, what, is, what does it cost you, Michael, for your project? When is your completion date? Uh, May 2025. Okay. Right. What happens if you miss it? Five million a month. Okay. Um, so we know what that is. So your five million a month, it's got to be complete by, and it's, a, you know, a, $400 million project, right? So yeah. I'm, I'm asking you to provide them with funding, maybe a hundred grand for them to hire a scientist who can review all of your technical studies. You're telling me you don't do it for anybody. It's not right. It's not fair. It's not equal. And you're willing to, you know, to me, it's a hill. It's like the dumbest hill you could die on here <laughs> because right. what it's going to end up doing is they they yeah. will they will do a thing called a judicial review. The minute you get your permit, Michael, they're going to sue you for lack of adequate and meaningful consultation. That won't be you. They're going to be fighting with the government. But you're Frodo. Right. If you don't understand your role in this whole conversation, you're Frodo right. in Lord of the Rings. These yeah, First yeah. Nations and governments are duking it out, and you're just Frodo and all of that. And and so that's going to be a three to five year 
legal process. And uh, right. so you told me that it's going to cost you five mil. That happens the moment you get your permit, three to five more years waiting. And you look at every major project, that's what's happened. And yeah. unless they're on site and you don't even hear about those, right. you know, they're involved with equity positions and that kind of stuff. So, you know, three years, let's say their lawyers are really lousy. Uh, that's going to be 180 million in cash. I don't think, you know, going, going to them with 50 million or no. Yeah. It, what is that? Yeah. 180 million in cash going to them with a $50 million offer. And right now I'm only asking you for a hundred grand for them to be able to hire yeah. a, a technical person to do the, you know, to do the readings for them. Yeah. Somebody they trust. I don't think it's a lot of money in the grand scheme of things. I personally right. don't, but it's your business, Michael. I'm going to let you make whatever decision. And they would take that and they would go, ah, what am I doing? You know, <laughs> right. I'm going to get so off what, of these what, hills. And what would, game am I playing here? Yeah. And what does success really look like? Yeah. You're thinking checkers, they're playing chess yeah. and, right. and you just need economic certainty. So that's what I, yeah. that's what I actually sell is economic nice. certainty. And so I, you know, give them that and they would go do amazing things like just 180 degree turns. Yes. We acknowledge we did harm in the past. We don't always get this right. We'd love to figure out how to do it. And they were resource. We, you know, we can do capacity funding for you. And, you know, if you need a lawyer, we'll help you. I mean, stuff they would never think of doing. Yeah. Once you yeah. gave them a really solid business reason, they, they would go and do, and it would be these little battles and it'd be like, and they would do it. And then other companies would be modeling, benchmarking, right. and they'd be like, uh, just like that railway company coming in, well, why'd you do that? And we'd give them the explanation, they'd buy our training. Oh. And uh, so it was the little battles. I'm like, man, if you gave that to a policy person, can you go, can you go build a policy that would allow managers to provide funding for capacity built? Two years, so watered down and you know what I mean? It would just be, I, I don't even know why. Yeah. I, I got to try not to beat up the policy people here too badly, but yeah, yeah. it's just, no. Well, this is this has been such a great conversation. I'm sad to have to bring it to an end, but I'm, I'm going to. I've got a final question for you. Um, what needs to be said that hasn't yet been said for you and me to be complete in this conversation? Oh, gosh. Um, I, don't, I don't think there's actually much to be said. You know, I feel... Um, I feel like we've had a, a really good conversation, you know, you, you've got an idea of my, my, you know, what I'm trying to achieve. I need good people, whether they're working for my company or good people just to pick up the reconciliation flag and, and, um, yeah, you know, and so the, the leadership stuff is so critical. I think if I were to close with something, it would be more of a cultural thing, but, and it really is mm -hmm. about the people. And I don't differentiate between indigenous and non-indigenous. I think about it in, in Canadian terms, but I do work internationally in that too. And, and so this is all about helping people. And I, I, I think maybe if I close on somebody like Zig Ziglar, you're probably a big reader of too, course. Zig Ziglar's yeah. Secrets of the Sale. Zig Ziglar, you know, shared a, a line in that, which was, if I can help enough people get what they want, I can have anything I want. And so I would just tell all of your leader listeners that that's really what you're trying to do. You need good people providing great service and experience to help you get what you want. And, uh, and, and we're doing it for the good of all people, not just one subset or another. And, you know, and I think that reconciliation process will change it'll change you but it'll actually be in a positive way you know we we've tried the 
work, you know, paid 40 hours a week, but working 60, 80. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know what I mean? We've tried, we've tried that way. I think that's pretty fair. You know, we tried, tried your way. Giving it a good I, shot. I yeah. can, yeah, I can tell you, you know, before contact where I come from, we were fish people and scientists have studied us and they've said, you know, the, these people were working less than nine weeks a year to get through Maslow's first two levels of the hierarchy of needs, yeah. food and shelter and leaving the rest of the year to do their winter ceremonials. Potlatching were months and months of celebrations and, you know, that kind of stuff, right? And so I, I really believe, and I remember I talked to my dad about this. Hey, they keep bringing up this question, you know, uh, you were primitive cultures and you live short, brutish lives. What, how do you respond? He said, really? They say that? Tell them we were working less than nine weeks a year and we weren't paying taxes. And ask them how they what they have is better. And uh, I'd love to hear That's that. Fine. So I honestly think, you know, reconciliation will bring a lot of value to the human race. And we have a mm -hmm. word for that. We're all one. And I think if we reconcile and can learn from each other, think about the world differently, it actually will be helpful. The favorite question I asked Bob was, how do you stay patient? I mean, when I think about what I'm up to in the world, the work I do plays to such a shorter timeline than his you know i write a book i try and build training around it i launch it to the world i try and bring people into this world and then set it up so it runs well bob is playing a much longer game a much bigger game he's trying to reconcile you know 140 years or more of injustice i really appreciate his patience of how he keeps doing the work as he makes sure what important gets passed along and how he figures out what's the next important thing to tackle you know, for me, is a role model, I think. And I hope we all find our worthy goals, something that's for the good of all the people. I love that, what he said at the end, the good of all the people. I hope we're all patient. I hope we're all willing to do the work. Thank you for listening. If you'd like more on Bob's work, uh, his corporate training is at ictinc.ca ictinc.ca and you'll find all the socials that you want there the website i love the website it's very clean it's very easy to navigate and so many resources there not just for corporations but for all of us bob has also spent his time giving back by creating content like ebooks what to say and what not to say as an example of one which is clearly and aptly named he loves people and that fuels the work that he does and the patience that he has. And I'm so delighted to talk to him. Thank you for listening to this conversation. If you'd liked it, you can show the love in the usual ways, a thumbs up on your favorite podcast platform, a review, even sweeter, passing it on to somebody going, hey, you should listen to this. This is a good conversation. You might like it. Um, that's the, the real caliber of people who come and grow our audience by word of mouth. Thank you. You're awesome. And you're doing great.